We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com, follow us on Twitter at FDRLST, and make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, John Daniel Davidson. He's the politics editor at The Federalist, also fresh off a trip back to Del Rio, and he's here to talk to us all about what he saw and what he heard. John, welcome. Thanks for having me, Emily. Of course. Now, so we actually have audio recordings that John took uh, during his reporting trip to the border to play for everyone. We have two of them. Um, John, why don't you just start off, though, by telling us about the trip, where you went, why you went there, what you saw, and then we can queue up each recording. Sure. I went to Del Rio, Texas, uh, which is a part of the border that became famous in September for this encampment of about 15,000 Haitians that crossed uh, from Acuna, which is the city across from Del Rio in Mexico, and crossed in in a, a very short period of time, overwhelming Border Patrol agents and setting up an encampment underneath the International Bridge in Del Rio. And this sort of put Del Rio on the map as these shocking images came out of the sheer size of the encampment and the volume of people crossing the river. And then, of course, this encampment is where the infamous, you know, mounted horse patrol incident took place where allegedly Border Patrol agents were whipping migrants with the reins of their horses, which was a complete fake story. Um, but it didn't stop President Biden and uh, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas and everybody corporate yeah, from demonizing Border Patrol agents as like these racist, you know, uh, you know, horse whip guys, you know, because of some images that were taken by a photographer who later came out and said, you know, he didn't see the ag- agents whipping anyone. They were trying to um, they were trying to prevent people from uh, getting up onto the shore. People were crossing back and forth over the river to go back into Mexico to buy stuff, to bring to the encampment, to sell it at a big markup. Sort of a complicated story. But this is where I went June before Del Rio became famous because of the Haitian encampment to learn about why Del Rio, which previously had been a pretty quiet area of the border. It's not like the Rio Grande Valley or some of these other, or like El Paso, some of these places that have become known for massive groups crossing or caravans or just record numbers of apprehensions. Del Rio was always a quiet section of the border. But this spring and summer, as the border crisis sort of deepened, uh, Del Rio became a hotspot for crossings of Venezuelans and Haitians and Cubans and people from parts of the world other than Mexico and Central America. So I became interested in Del Rio for that reason, that somehow word had gotten out to uh, uh, nationalities other than the typical Central American and Mexican migrants that this was an easy place to cross. And, uh, and so we went and, you know, in, in June, we talked to the sheriff, we talked to some of the um, nonprofits that assist the migrants, talked to some landowners, tried to get a sense of of why really the whole world was uh, coming to Del Rio to cross into the United States uh, and really overwhelming that community. They were, you know, ICE would be dropping off like 300 migrants at the bus station in downtown Del Rio, which is not a bus station. It's a Stripes gas station where Greyhound picks people up. Del Rio is a small town. It's like, you know, uh, 38,000, 40,000 people. And so, Having 300 people, 300 migrants at the gas station down caused quite a stir. 
the uh, residents of that town. And they've been dealing with this for months and months, having a a migrant encampment under the International Bridge of 15,000 people. That's nearly half the population of the whole town. So you can imagine uh, why Del Rio kind of became a flashpoint for the border crisis and also sort of an instructive place to understand how the crisis is playing out. So the last week I decided to go back after sort of the fallout from the September incident and and see how um, the authorities are faring in Del Rio today. And I actually remember when you went in June, we did a podcast just like this and you recounted hearing from, I think it was uh, a sheriff in Del Rio that a Haitian woman had drowned, a pregnant Haitian woman had drowned in uh, the river attempting to cross. And I remember thinking at the time, I didn't even realize that that there were Haitian migrants in such numbers trying to cross. But it seems like Del Rio and we we talked to Todd Bensman about this on the podcast about a month ago. There was just a word of mouth campaign that at Del Rio, people were being let through. And in the Haitian community that was scattered throughout South America, they got that message and they flocked to Del Rio. Was that still happening by the time you got there or was it a very different situation? Well, that was certainly happening in June, and then that continued to happen through July, August, culminating in September when we had this this migrant encampment. And I should say one of the reasons that people um, did go to Del Rio is because there traditionally hasn't been a very strong cartel presence in Acuna uh, on the Mexican side of the river. Mm. And so uh, a lot of migrants would not have to pay tax or fee that most migrants on other stretches of the border have to pay to the cartel that controls that section of the border. So if you're, if they're in Reynosa and they're crossing near McAllen, they're going to have to pay an extra fee to the smugglers who have to pass that fee on to the cartels that control that area. That hasn't um, traditionally been the case uh, in, in the Del Rio section of the border, which is why a lot of people were coming there. It was a, it was a bargain. It was a lower risk in terms of being kidnapped or being um, extorted um, because there wasn't that cartel presence. I've been told just recently on this last trip that I did by state law enforcement officials that a cartel presence has now shown up in Acuna to take advantage of the situation because they're, there, wherever there is a large group of migrants, it's potential profit, it's potential income for the cartels and the smuggling networks. And so now there is a cartel presence in Acuna to take advantage of the situation. There is not, to answer your question, the same kind of presence uh, with Haitian migrants as we've seen in the past. And part of that, and I believe Todd Benzman spoke to this, when the Biden administration started deporting just a, a small fraction of the people in that Haitian encampment, uh, back to Haiti, it caused kind of a scare among the, the rest of the encampment that they were going to be, if they got taken into custody or they got on these customs and border protection buses, that they were going to be flown back to Haiti. Now, these mm-hmm. are people who hadn't lived in Haiti in a decade. You know, they had been living in various countries in South America uh, for many years and they had no intention of going back to Haiti. Many of them had completely left their lives behind in Haiti. And so of that 15,000 person encampment, about 8,000 of those people crossed back into Mexico, just walked back across the river so that they wouldn't be taken into U.S. custody because um, they were afraid they would be sent back to Haiti. So there's no longer uh, the same kind of problem in Del Rio as you had uh, a couple months ago. 
with with uh, Haitian migrants, but there is still uh, a large numbers of Venezuelans and, and Cubans and, and of course Mexicans and Central Americans that that are continue to cross in Del Rio and, and, and all up and down the border. Oh, man. So tell us about this first recording before we play it. Um, who are you talking to? And tell us, you know, just a preview of the conversation. Sure. One of the people I was uh, down there with was Rodney Scott. Uh, Rodney Scott was the Border Patrol chief uh, during the Trump administration. So uh, U.S. Border Patrol has something like 20,000 uh, Border Patrol agents, uh, and he was promoted to be chief Border Patrol agent. He spent most of his career in San Diego during the Trump administration. He, of course, was in was in Washington um, and he stayed on. You know, the Border Patrol chief is not a like Senate confirmed position. It's not a political position. Um, it is it is a, 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 a sort of a staff position, if you will. And, and Border Patrol agents typically are just promoted up through the ranks to be the Border Patrol chief. Uh, and that was the case with Rodney Scott. He's a, a veteran agent. Uh, he, and so, of course, he stayed on when when the Biden administration came into office and was doing his best in a very difficult uh, circumstance to try to do what he could uh, uh, in the midst of this this border crisis that was created by Biden's policies. And in August, he was just summarily fired by the mm. Biden administration. He was just dismissed. Uh, no sort of explanation. It was just like, thanks for your service. You're out. Um, and uh, he just was an unusual step uh, to politicize this kind of uh, role, this kind of position. Um, so I was able to, uh, while I was touring the border, I was able to, to talk with him and get his perspective on, on what he's seeing uh, and what he was able to do while he was Border Patrol chief and what he thinks the challenges are now uh, facing not, not just Border Patrol, but facing these border communities in Texas. So let's take a listen to John's conversation with Ronnie Scott. So what's your what's your assessment? Of, I mean, at, literally as we're talking, there are people walking down to the to the waters that I don't think they're going to cross. I think they're just careful because it's a nice spot. But maybe they are going to cross. Who knows? Yeah, or they're scouting it out for maybe, later. Yeah. What's your assessment of where we are and what what the administration's um, plan or or the reasoning behind the actions that they have, they have taken? So I honestly, I, I try to avoid getting into the reasoning because I can't really get into their mind. I, I, would, I would be speculating, uh, but this is what I do know. Uh, this administration has systematically shut down every program that was working uh, to, to actually slow down the flow. And this is a national security issue. Every time the agents here have to respond to a large group of, of illegal aliens claiming asylum or not, that takes them away from other mission sets. Um, you know, we're talking about people walking down to the river right now, but especially at night, this is a corridor for, for cocaine, marijuana, heroin, and fentanyl. So if you have any of those problems in your community farther in the country, they cross the border somewhere. When agents get pulled off and they're processing, it takes about two hours to process each individual uh, illegal aliens pouring across, it takes them away from those other missions. Unfortunately, uh, since January 20th, I haven't seen a single action or even a single conversation while I was still in, in uh, the chief's position to try to slow the flow, to actually create a deterrent to illegal entry. Every single action uh, has been to basically more welcoming, how can we process faster, um, and, and that's just going to continue to be an invitation worldwide. And that's the other thing, 150 different countries. A lot of mainstream media wants to talk about Central America and North uh, 
you know, the triangle, northern triangle countries, and that's a big part of it. But every other country is blending into that group, and that chaos creates the ability for them to sneak into this country. You mentioned earlier today the difference between notice to appear and notice to report and explain how you you sort of helped spearhead the idea of a notice to report. Explain that quickly. Yeah, so it's a uh, the least worst option. I think it's a good, it's not a good option. Uh, but what was happening was that Border Patrol agents were, I was still chief, Border Patrol agents were coming to me and telling me that they literally did not feel safe, that so many of them were stuck processing illegal aliens that were literally being released into the U.S. because this administration had already deemed them a low risk, whether it be family units or, or unaccompanied kids. And in this case, family units. Um, so the ultimate uh, decision is, had already been made. They're going to get released. But now they're doing two hours plus to do a notice to appear, which just means it's setting them up for a court date. It basically legalizes them, allows them to move about the country freely until that court date ultimately comes up. But that's a few years down the road. Right. Agents came to me and said they did not feel safe because now they're out there by themselves. They could hear automatic weapons fire going off just south of them. The military in this area is clashing with the cartel all the time from here down to RGV and other areas. I had to find a way to get more Border Patrol agents out in the field. So what an NTR is or a notice to report is we still arrest the individual. Uh, they get documented, the illegal entry. They get their fingerprints run through national databases to make sure they're not a criminal. But when they meet that threshold where this administration has said that they're going to get released anyway, the agents then don't set them up for they They basically skip that second step of setting them up for, uh, for a notice to appear and give them a notice to report to ICE at whatever city or town they're going to ultimately, and they can get set up for a notice to appear there. But I want to make sure people understand, none of us thought it's a great decision, but what it did was allowed us to put Border Patrol agents back on the border to go head-to-head -head with the cartel and the criminal aliens that are trying to sneak around that aren't giving up and make sure that we had some enforcement presence still out on the border because for a while there wasn't any. And a, a notice to report doesn't give them what a notice to appear gives them, which is work authorization. Correct. So a notice to appear, you stay illegal. You're just, I'm sorry, a notice to report, it just documents that you entered illegally. It gives you no legal status. Once you get a notice to appear, that is technically a legal status until you're hearing. And usually they go to the very first hearing because they ask for a work authorization uh, card or work authorization there. Um, and that's exactly, that's the big difference. Okay. We're talking to Rodney Scott. He's the former U.S. Border Patrol chief. I'm John Davidson for The Federalists, coming to you from the Rio Grande. John, what were your biggest takeaways from that conversation? One of the things I did not realize before I talked to uh, Mr. Scott was this distinction between uh, notice. Well, I understood the distinction between a notice to appear and a notice to report. And people who have been following the border crisis know that the Biden administration began issuing notices to report to migrants that are apprehended at the border. And what that basically means, it sounds bad. It basically means we're not going to process you in the normal way. We're just going to give you this slip of paper that says whenever you get to where you're going in the United States, you have 60 days to report into the local ICE office so we can get you uh, a court date and start processing you. Uh, and so you can preserve claim ever. And that sounds bad because obviously a lot of these people are not going to do that once they get to where they're going. They're not going to voluntarily go uh, and start an asylum process that they have almost no chance of 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 winning, right? They're just going to melt into the country uh, and join the population of Glim in America. Uh, and so I, 
you know, what I didn't realize what, and, and what Scott helped explain was that the reason they were doing that was that Border Patrol was so overwhelmed processing people and getting them notices to appear in court and starting basically starting their proceedings that they didn't they couldn't send any border patrol agents out onto the line to actually do the job of the border patrol and this is something a lot of people need to understand under normal circumstances the border patrol sees their job as law enforcement they are there to stop drug smugglers human smugglers cartel and gang members uh, and also to apprehend, uh, for the most part, at least in the past, people who are trying to evade law enforcement, people who are trying to sneak into the country undetected. This phenomenon of unaccompanied minors and family units crossing the border and then seeking out Border Patrol to turn themselves in is, is a relatively new. That's only something that we've really seen in any kind of volume in the past couple of years. And it's completely changed the dynamic on the border and completely frustrated the Border Patrol whose time is now completely consumed with processing large numbers of people who have turned themselves in, trying to provide for them logistically, transport them, figure out where to house them, try to figure out who's who, uh, you know, verifying people's identities, doing the paperwork. And so Scott found that his agents were completely overwhelmed with record numbers of people crossing the border this summer and this fall. Uh, He had to figure out a way to get agents back in the field. And so uh, he thought, uh, we'll come up with this uh, this thing called give them the, a notice to report so we can turn them around quickly and get agents back out on the field. And, and the other thing I didn't realize was that a notice to report does not give the migrant a legal status like a notice to appear. These migrants who are waiting for these asylum cases to be adjudicated, which the average case takes like three years now, they get a work authorization to stay in the United States and work while they're waiting for their case to wend its way through the system. Uh, but but that is and so that's an incentive for people to come and file an asylum claim, whether or not they have any chance of ga- gaining asylum. Like if they're an economic migrant and they're just coming here for a better job, if they just go through the asylum process, it could take two, three, four years. And during that time, they are here legally working, sending money home. And that, 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 that may be their entire purpose. They may have accomplished their entire purpose for crossing into the United States to be able to do that because of the amount of money they can make working here as opposed to their home country. Mm. But a notice to report does not give them that same status. They're still they still are um, sort of in expedited removal. They do do not have work authorization. They still have an illegal status, if you will. Um, and and I, I didn't I didn't fully realize that. And it, it's it's complicated. Uh, so I think a lot of people didn't realize that. But uh, but from the Border Patrol's perspective, I can see why that that's a solution. That's the best solution in a very bad situation that that they would come up with. Yeah, that sounds like such an important distinction between the two notices. Um, and I, I'm curious also, you mentioned that the phenomenon of people coming with children who I'm assuming in many cases, I know in many cases are not their own children, um, but coming with children across the border um, and seek asylum is several years old. It's not going back, back, back. The Obama administration had child separation, um, had a child separation policy as well. How far back does it go? And it, what does it tell us about how people have realized they can exploit asylum laws. We first saw large numbers of unaccompanied children showing up at the border uh, in in 2014. And that was Mm. the first, you know, unaccompanied minor crisis at the border. Uh, And to your point about the Obama administration, that was the the Obama administration's first response to that. Uh, It would 
not just unaccompanied children, but families. We started seeing large numbers of families and large numbers of, of unaccompanied minors in 2014, uh, mostly from the the um, Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador showing up. Had never really happened before. The first response of the Obama administration was to uh, was to separate families, try to ascertain whether these were uh, authentic families or or they, these were adults with children that they weren't related to posing to get as as parents so they could claim asylum um if a, a a federal judge put an end to the family separation very quickly um and the obama administration's response was okay we'll just detain family units together um you know all as a unit until we can process them their asylum claims and in most cases deport them because because they they don't have valid claims to asylum um the courts also stopped that they say they interpreted an old uh, federal lawsuit saying you can only detain children for something like 72 hours, even if they're accompanied by their their parents. So family units can't be detained for uh, for longer than a set amount of time. Unaccompanied children can't be detained. You have to turn these these people loose. And so this is how you, how you got the so-called catch and release policies of the Obama administration. As families came across and claimed asylum, as unaccompanied minors came across and claimed asylum, they were just processed and released, processed and released. Um, and, and, you know, you saw large numbers of them in 2014 uh, and, and then again in 2019, you know, record numbers. And then again this year, sort of blowing all the records away um, and totally overwhelming. Uh, federal border facilities such that, you know, they didn't even have, they weren't even, even able to process them fast enough, um, you know, to not overwhelm these facilities. And so you have these soft-sided facilities and sort of emergency shelters crop up all up and down the border that had many of them horrible conditions. Uh, you know, that's why I say the border crisis under Biden kind of turned into a humanitarian catastrophe, uh, like a, just a complete disaster. Um, and, and, you know, it doesn't get a lot of play in the corporate media, but it's it's ongoing. This hasn't gone away. It's, it's still happening. Right. And, and speaking of the Obama administration, your second conversation, the second recording we have is with Mark Morgan, correct? That's right. Mark Morgan um, was the commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection. That's the parent agency to the U.S. Border Patrol um, and uh, was fairly high up in the um, Department of Homeland Security bureaucracy. Uh, Mark Morgan uh, served uh, during the Trump administration uh, in that capacity. He was a, a veteran FBI agent from El Paso. Uh, he he was appointed, as, I think, acting chief of the Border Patrol for, for a short time and then was made commissioner of CBP. So he has a lot of experience on the border and, and he has um, been around the border in law enforcement capacity, different law enforcement capacities. Um, for quite a long time. And so I got the opportunity uh, last week to be down in Del Rio with him as well and get his perspective on, on what we were seeing. And, and, I'll, and I should preface the, the interview by saying one of the reasons we were down there was to survey and, um, and learn about Operation Lone Star, which is uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott's effort at a, a very unique effort at a state sort of border enforcement regime. I don't think anything quite like it has ever been tried before, but the idea is that in the absence of the federal government uh, enforcing immigration laws, 
the state is going to step in with state law enforcement, state national guard, Texas state guard to try to um, bring some deterrence to the border. And what they're doing is arresting migrants who are caught trespassing on private land and prosecuting them for criminal trespass. Uh, It's a very um, complex operation that involves thousands and thousands of people, and it's still just a drop in the bucket. Um, So uh, I asked Mark Morgan what he thought about that. All right, let's play Mark Morgan. Mark, what is your impression from being down here and knowing what you know and having come at this with your background and your very recent experience in Trump administration? Yeah, that's a good question. A couple of takeaways, and you were with the briefings too this morning, you know, from Texas DPS, specifically the currently the director, Steve McGraw, and the whole host of state agencies that are really working collectively uh, together to really fill the void and the gap that's being left by this administration not securing our borders, not doing what they should with respect to illegal immigration. I've been doing this for a while. I know this border. And I got to tell you, I was I was surprised at the level and the magnitude of effort that Texas is actually putting forth. And really, I mean, the amount of money, the amount of resources, again, to fill that gap, and they're making a difference. And then I think when we went down and the, the border today, and we, we saw, for example, the the, um, the the barriers that they're putting in. I, I, I you know, again, I, what I saw was an agency that's trying to do something because the federal government has abdicated their responsibility. They're absolutely doing nothing. And so when you look at that, that those, those barriers being put up, so you, you're seeing an agency that look, it's going to be effective because one, it's going to act as a deterrence. Two is is that it's going to give them ability to really make sure that they, the trespassing charges stick. If they come in and they try to move the barrier or cut it or, or damage the barrier, they're going to be able to add to the criminal mischief uh, charge to it as well to actually do this. Shocker, but consequences for breaking the law to illegal entry. Because right now, you know, we were talking about earlier, there's no consequences. There's none. You can illegally enter the country. Not only are there no consequences, you actually are rewarded for breaking into our country. Texas is trying to stop that. Do you think that the restrictions that are in place simply by virtue of the fact that these are state actors, state law enforcement, they're only going after single adult males, there's a limit to what they can prosecute in terms of the actual crime that they're prosecuting for, that those limitations make Texas's effort in this regard more of a show that, than a, than an effective deterrent that will actually have uh, that will actually change what's happening on the border. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair question. I I wouldn't say it's it's a it's a show, but it is less effective, right? Because because you're I, I completely agree with you. The demographic that really they're focused on are single adults. So unaccompanied minors, they're not doing anything other than the ones they're apprehending at uh, unaccompanied minors and families. They're returning them to border patrol. Now, don't let's not undercut that because right. with Texas National Guard and Texas DPS, they've apprehended 156,000 right. uh, unaccompanied minors and families that they handle. Helping the relieve patrol. the pressure. So exactly. So so the more they do that, the more border patrol agents can get on the line. And then the other gap that they're feeling, because remember, you still have about 50 percent. I think it's a little under there, single adults, and the majority of the gotaways, those that are avoiding apprehension, are single adults. So Texas is filling that void as well. So they're 
apprehending individuals that, had they not apprehended them, they would have gotten away. I mean, they'd be into the interior United States. We have no idea who they are, although we know there are criminal aliens are among them. So I definitely think that they're filling the gap. Now, again, with the barriers, again, you know, what degree of, of, of deterrence it's going to be, it's, it's minimal with respect to that, but it's still going to be somewhat of a deterrence factor. Um, people are, you know, they're going to be able to get over that. But again, if that enables them to beef up the charges and, and you know, the consequences that they are able to, to put on these individuals for breaking the law, hopefully that will act as an additional deterrent. In a way, the scale and the level of coordination that we've seen among Texas state agencies here and the amount of effort that's gone into it. I mean, every hotel in Del Rio is full of DPS, SUVs, and Texas State Guard. It's like the city is full of Texas state law enforcement all working together. And that itself is a massive, in my view, indictment of the federal government. It's too, again, completely agreed. So not only is it a massive indictment of the federal government of what they're not doing, because we wouldn't need those resources, obviously, if there wasn't a void. So again, completely agree. Another thing that it does, though, look, the cartels, I always say the cartels could come and teach a, a, a course on business at Harvard University of resiliency, flexibility, their ability to change their tactics and techniques so quickly. Look, and when they see an area that's flooded with resources like Texas here, guess what they're going to do? They're just going to move to another area. It works. So just the fact that they're here, that that show of force acts as a deterrence as well. But you're absolutely right. It also shows what the federal government isn't doing. And here's the last thing I'll say. Look, until we apply consequences, look, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, someone that illegally enters the United States, until we detain them while they're going through the proceedings and those claims that are found to be fraudulent, which we know the overwhelming majority are, until we detain them and remove them, it's not going to stop. As long as individuals are being released eventually, which is what's happening right now, they're going to keep coming. Our border is going to remain unsecure. We're talking with Mark Morgan, former Customs and Border Protection Commissioner here in Del Rio, Texas, on a tour of the border. I'm John Davidson with the Federalist. Okay, John. So Morgan's thoughts on Operation Lone Star um, are interesting. What is your reaction to, to his reaction, basically, to how it's been playing out so far? He was impressed at the complexity and the scale of the operation. You know, it, it doesn't just involve Texas state troopers or or uh, state National Guard. Uh, it involves the, you know, Texas, um, you know, jails and corrections facilities and uh, prosecutors local sheriffs, local county prosecutors. Uh, it involves a whole array of state agencies that all are having to work together. Um, they, they had to take a state prison and sort of retrofit it into a county jail. And so there's, you know, there's different state law requirements for jails versus prisons. And since they're taking these migrants, they arrest you know, large numbers of them, hundreds and hundreds. I think there's there's over almost two thousand have been arrested so far. Um, you know, they they're housing them in a retrofitted county or state prison that's been turned into a jail for the purposes of this operation. So it's just a lot. So he, he was impressed just at the sheer scale of the operation, the level of complexity and effort that's put into it. And I was as well. You know, I think I, I mentioned in that conversation. You drive around Del Rio, all you see are are Texas DPS vehicles. Every hotel parking lot is full of state troopers and Texas National Guard. It's a it, it is a massive operation. But for all that, it 
my reaction is that it still feels like a little bit like border theater for, mm. for Greg Abbott. It's a drop in the bucket. And there is a chance that it, it is it is counterproductive as well. I mean, Ching, they are they are wholly ruling out the operation. Uh, but there's a lot of answered questions that I think nobody really has the answers to right now. Like, you know, what happens when um, these migrants that they arrest for criminal trespass post bond and get discharged from state custody? Who picks them up? Before last week, ICE was picking them up on detainers. But last week, ICE announced they were no longer going to do that. So now they need Border Patrol to come pick them up. And is Border Patrol going to expel them under Title 42 or process them like, like they were their asylum seekers and release them? They're only, they're only arresting single adult men. So these are, these are people who, if they were encountered by Border Patrol, most of them would be ex- immediately expelled back to Mexico under Title 42, which is the Trump era pandemic health order that basically just shuts the border for single adult males. Um, so I, I think that there is, you know, Greg Abbott has gotten a lot of a criticism here in Texas for not doing more on the border. And part of me can't help but think that Operation Lone Star, for all its complexity, uh, is a way to shore up his right flank in the coming 2022 gubernatorial election in Texas. Back in the early 2000s, Blackberries revolutionized how we communicated. But it was not long before Steve Jobs and Apple thought they could outperform them with a phone of their own. In an all-new season of Business Wars, you'll hear about how Blackberries and iPhones battled for their shares of the emerging mobile phone market. It seems standard now, but BlackBerry's ability to allow users to text and send emails was a major game changer at the time. They were the first mobile devices that could sync work emails to a phone. So for the first time, people weren't chained to their desks. Now, as the gold standard, every power player from D.C. to New York City to Los Angeles had a BlackBerry. But just when they thought they had the market cornered, in 2007, Apple launched the iPhone. On Business Wars, iPhone versus BlackBerry, you'll hear how BlackBerry, the phone favored by presidents, Wall Street, and top government officials, spurred Apple to push the envelope by developing technology that would usher in the future of phones, putting the power of smartphones in the pockets of billions worldwide. Now, I still have a vintage BlackBerry that I like to you know, hold in my hand sometime just for old time's sake. But this story, the story that Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry is telling is one that we can't lose to history because there's so much important trends and important information embedded in that battle. So listen to Business Wars iPhone versus BlackBerry podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Yeah, and, and adding layers of bureaucracy to an already very bureaucratic uh, and, and efficient process seems, like you said, potentially counterproductive. Um, and you keep saying that it, Operation Lone Star, is, it amounts essentially to a drop in the bucket. Um, and why is that? Why is it that with the full might of the, the state of Texas and its own law enforcement um, agencies, why is it that this so far only does amount to a drop in the bucket? Well, because they're only operating on a certain part of the border, Um, Valverde County, which is where Del Rio is, and Kinney County, which is right next to Valverde County, is really the the uh, locus of Operation Lone Star. The state has doled out some money to some other counties, but the the bulk of the law enforcement personnel effort uh, is in is in those two counties. And 
the whole thing rests upon the willingness of the county prosecutor to uh, bring charges to uh, against the migrants that the state has arrested. So in Valverde County, the Democratic county prosecutor, David Martinez, has uh, declined to prosecute hundreds of these cases because he doesn't he thinks it's a waste of time. He's not on board with, with the mission and um, uh, and and he he doesn't think he has the support that he needs to bring all these cases and, and he doesn't think they're good cases. So so the whole thing rests upon the ca- a local county prosecutor deciding to play ball and go along with Operation Lone Star. So in Kinney County, the local prosecutor has decided that he he wants to. And so that's really become sort of the testing ground for Operation Lone Star is, is in tiny Kinney County with a county prosecutor who just started on the job in January and is like, it's just him and like his assistant. Like, it's not like he has a big staff. These are not big places. Um, so that's why I say it's a drop in the bucket. And also because they're only arresting single adult males and they're only arresting single adult males who cross on certain parcels of private land where the where the landowner has agreed to be a complainant in a criminal trespass case. And they have to cross they have to cross bar- temporary barriers that the Texas National Guard has set up so that they can be prosecuted for criminal trespass. So they're laying out these these spools of uh, concertina wire so that there's a barrier there that the migrants have to get over. Um, so it, it's all very, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's really a complicated operation, but it's a drop in the bucket. You know, 1.7 million people were arrested at the border last year and Texas has so far arrested maybe 1500 people in this operation. Mm-hmm. So you can see the scale, the scale of things. It's, it's, it's really beyond the scope of something like, Operation Lone Star, as it has been conceived by Governor Abbott and and Texas officials. Is the plan to scale it up? Um, You mentioned that Kenny is sort of like a testing ground. So are they doing this with the intentions of expanding it or is it just sort of spot coverage where they can? I think that they do plan to expand it. But as I said, there are certain constraints because of how narrowly tailored it is. You know, they're not if the county attorney in Valverde doesn't want to you know, participate, then they can't expand to Valverde County. They're, you know, they're, they can only expand to places where, where they can actually prosecute these cases. And I think, you know, and, and I'll just say this from my perspective, I think as impressive as the operation is sort of from a logistical standpoint, I think it reflects a failure of imagination on the part of Greg Abbott uh, and some of the, and the people who are advising him about what they, sh- what could be done at the state level to secure the border. There's a lot that Greg Abbott could do beyond this really narrowly tailored kind of almost legalistic, uh, you know, very like type a sort of plan that like, Oh, we gotta, you know, we have to, we have to get all these agreements in place and, and we can only prosecute this crime in order to do that. We need, you know, they're, they're, they're looking at this from a, from a law enforcement perspective when they need to be looking at it from a constitutional perspective. In the, in the event that the federal government abdicates its responsibility to secure the borders, there is a constitutional case that state actors can step into that void and protect their borders and exercise what is normally a federal responsibility, which is to secure the border, to expel illegal immigrants, uh, and to uh, and to do that uh, in in any way that is effective. So, in other words, state um, state law enforcement deporting 
illegal immigrants back to Mexico. Greg Abbott's not willing to do that. He's not willing to sort of push the envelope and maybe ask for uh, forgiveness rather than permission. Um, it, it would no doubt trigger a uh, constitutional uh, showdown between the federal and state governments. But I say we're already in this crisis, neck deep. So let's have that showdown. Let's see what happens uh, when state actors, state law enforcement officials start deporting people over the Rio Grande. You know, Texas DPS has a lot of boats. They could just literally drive the boat to the south bank of the Rio Grande and deposit migrants on back on the south bank where they came from, rather than engaging in this kind of legalistic fiction that as soon as somebody steps foot into the Rio Grande, they have a right to be taken into U.S. custody and processed and released into, into the country for two, three, four years until ICE decides that it's going to, you know, deport them and track them down wherever they may be. It's ridiculous, the the, the system that we've built up and, and somebody needs to, I think, step up and sort of say, no, uh, this is this is not acceptable for the people of Texas. That's not acceptable for these border communities. And we're going to take action to um, secure the border if the federal government won't do it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And you've been covering um, not only obviously how this all played out under Trump, but how this played out, how this is playing out under Joe Biden and how there was sort of an immediate surge, because, again, it, it was this impression, accurate impression that uh, people were being allowed to cross and they would be allowed in and it would be easier. Um, what did this last trip to Del Rio tell you about that? Um, what did it tell you about uh, how this is all how the how the Biden administration's immigration policies are maybe continuing to affect uh, surges or crossings. Um, how are how are potential migrants reacting to the Biden administration? It sort of confirms that nothing's changed. The, Biden, the, the border crisis is ongoing. It's uh, not abating. And it's just a matter of time before we have another kind of like Del Rio encampment or, or we have another caravan that shows up in mass somewhere. You know, there's already reports of large numbers of migrants moving through uh, these these various choke points in Central America, moving up into Mexico. Um, nothing that I have seen from the Biden administration indicates at all that they are cognizant of uh, the nature of the crisis or that they care that it's a crisis there. And, and this was part of the discussions that I had with Mark Morgan and Rodney Scott and others, their whole focus, not for deterrence. It is on processing people, getting people through the system and getting them released into the country. That, that is how uh, Homeland um, Secretary Mayorkas sees his job is to facilitate the entrance of these people into the country, not in putting in deterrence measures but, or measures to secure the border. And not, and, and this is a, this could be the subject of a whole different podcast, using any sticks to motivate Mexico to uh, help out in this effort. Uh, only carrots, only offering rewards for Mexican compliance or for the compliance of other countries all along the migration route that goes all the way to South America and beyond. Mm. Do you have any final takeaways from the, this most recent trip to Del Rio? Just to reiterate what I said, I mean, it's only a matter of time. You know, you, you, 
we're just going to have to uh, wait a matter of weeks or months for another flashpoint that uh, will capture national headlines for a little while, that will illustrate the depths of the crisis that we're in. But we are not going to see any policy change from the Biden administration. This, unfortunately, is the state of uh, affairs that they um, have created and uh, at this point knowingly are perpetuating on the border. And so we're going to continue to see record numbers of illegal um, crossings. We're going to continue to see efforts to process them as quickly as they can, as we can and release into the country. Uh, and I'm sure that we are going to see efforts by the Biden administration to stop state efforts like Operation Lone Star, limited and timid as it might be. I actually do have one final question, and it's about the town of Del Rio itself, which is in, it's not El Paso. It's it's as you mentioned, it's a smaller community. Um, but as you're driving through there talking to folks, what is it like to have a community like that be overrun now with people working as part of Operation Lone Star or um, already federal agents, I'm sure, who were who were down there? What's going on in, in Del Rio itself, not even at the at the border, you know, in and of itself, but like the, the actual town? What does it look like? How are people reacting? It's a little surreal, honestly. Um, like I said, the sheer volume of law enforcement and and. Texas National Guard, you know, see, so these are like, you know, you see like Humvee, armored Humvees and, and, and soldiers in camouflage and, you know, state troopers uh, everywhere. Uh, I got pulled over actually on, on my way down because um, I didn't have a license plate on the front of my vehicle. Wow. Um, <laughs> but, I, but the state trooper who pulled me over then proceeded to tell me that I perfectly fit the description of a uh, of the kind of person that the cartels and the smugglers would hire from Austin, which is where I, I was driving from, to come down and uh, transport um illegal immigrants north uh, mm. they, they offer cash payment for people a lot of, a lot of times from austin or from dallas or houston to drive down to the border um the the, the state trooper told me they often want to recruit uh, white people uh in suvs um and they tell them not to wear a ball cap and sunglasses and of course i was in an <laughs> suv with tinted windows and a ball cap and sunglasses on <laughs> So I think that the state trooper may have been profiling me as a as a uh, an accomplice for um, migrant smuggling, uh, which he he basically told me that that that's what he was doing. But I think that's the the other, the other thing people don't realize that these cartels and smuggling networks, like you know, American citizens are involved in this. They're 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 recruiting people on TikTok and Facebook mm. to transport these migrants, and a lot of times the the people who are doing who are, who accept these jobs. Um, a lot of them teenagers are not aware that they're involved in human trafficking. And a lot of the migrants themselves uh, are not aware that they are being trafficked mm. at the point that they are crossing the border and getting into the vehicles and being driven north to cities in the interior. They don't find out until later that they're not free to go and that they're not going to where they thought they were going. So it's a, um, it's a big, big problem, and uh, I think most people don't understand it. But for the people in Del Rio, I think a lot of people do understand what's going on. I've, I've talked to a lot of landowners down there. I talked to one woman who, uh, you know, her and her, her mother and her grandmother take care of a family ranch that's been in the family for six generations, and they never had any problems. Big piece of land right on, right on the border. Uh, and this past year, they've had problems, repeated problems of migrants breaking into the house, trashing the place, stealing whatever they could. Um, 
they used to call the border patrol. They don't call the border patrol anymore because the last time they did border patrol told them we can't get anyone out there. We're overwhelmed. Um, and you should move. Mm. You should not go to your property anymore. Now imagine law enforcement saying that to an American in any other part of the country, we can't protect you. You should abandon your property and move because we cannot protect you there. So, that's the message that people in Del Rio and people in border communities have been getting from the federal authorities. So I think a lot of them uh, welcome the involvement of the state, even if it's just a drop in the bucket. I mean, that sounds like what happens in Central America and in Mexico. It's that, well, we're, we're overrun. And so basically cartels can be the government of certain pieces yeah. of land. Yeah. You're on your own is what the message is. You're on your own um, and you should move. Mm. John Daniel Davidson, politics editor at The Federalist. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Emily. You've been listening to another edition of The Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. <laughs>